We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to PerpetualChessPod.com. So without further ado... Let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined this week by an old friend of the podcast, amongst much bigger distinctions. He is an award-winning journalist, a longtime Chess Life magazine columnist. Uh, He writes the Chess to Enjoy column, which I always enjoy. He is a prolific author of over 50 books, a World Chess Hall of Fame member, Um, returning to the show for the fourth time, and we're excited to talk about his latest books, one of which is Smyslav Bronstein Killer Geller Taimanov in Aberbach. Geller was a killer. Um, A chess multibiography with 220 games, and his newest book, which is 500 Chess Questions Answered for All New Chess Players, one, uh, the latter being a guide for new chess fans, and the other being a fascinating multibiography for all the chess history buffs. So we'll talk about those books and much more, but first let's welcome him back, Grandmaster Andy Soltis. How are you, Andy? I'm fine. I'm glad to be here. 
Yeah, always glad to have you. And we should, uh, as always, give the caveat that when I have the privilege of interviewing Andy, we do it via Skype. I call him from Skype to his phone. So if it sounds a little different than our other interviews, uh, that is why. Although usually it comes out sounding pretty decent, and hopefully that's the case this time as well. Um, so Andy, we've as usual, you're, I don't know how you do it in terms of um, your output of books. Um, so we've got a lot to talk about in that regard. But I actually, Andy, wanted to start off this time talking about sort of chess improvement, because I know you've obviously written about this from many angles in addition to your chess history work. But what is your most succinct advice for for how one should work on their game? Um, and we have a more specific question from a listener. But let's start with that. Hmm. <laughs> well, I think the best thing to do is learn how to analyze, because if you start looking at a position, any position, uh, just pick something randomly that you see in, uh, you know, being played today in a, in a tournament somewhere that you found on Chessbomb. Think about the position. Try to figure out what you would do in that position. Uh, what moves would you consider? Um, are there moves that you would immediately rule out? try to identify the immediate tactics. What am I threatening? What can I capture? What can he capture? If you can do that, if you can analyze chess positions every day, you build up a a, uh, a tonal quality that is bound to pay off in the end. So a little bit reminiscent of the sort of DeGroote um, approach of just thinking in words about the position and then comparing what you think in, in terms of what you will learn a stronger player or stronger engine thinks based on what they actually do. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we talk about the quality of, of intuition, which is sort of a, a mysterious you know quality. You know, if you've seen the, the old... Uh, movies on television, the detective is asked, uh, you know, what are you looking for? And he says, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll find it when I know. Uh, I'll know when I find it. He's, he's intuitive in that sense. And that's what happens with chess. You try to, to build up this internal sense of there's a move that's appropriate in this type of position. I should know it. And if I've had enough experience with similar positions, I'll figure it out. That's intuition. That's what you really want to develop. And what advice would you give for people who who do that but still feel like they just have more questions than answers? They try to work through that process, but then once they've done it, they it, it can be hard to sort of square the circle of what you were thinking versus what is correct if if you're not working with a coach. Yeah, this is a problem. Uh, I mean, coaches are not supposed to answer your questions. They're supposed to ask you questions. They're supposed to get you thinking. And the problem today is that people have computers and they think that they'll get all of the answers to their, uh, the mysteries that confront them. Uh, you know, why didn't uh, Carlson play Knight C6? Well, it, the computer will tell you, give you a, a variation, but you need words. And you're going to have to get words from books and other sources. And, and sometimes you just analyze with another person. Sometimes I think I think the ideal situation is to analyze with two or maybe three people total. Um, if you get more than that, you get too many hands moving pieces on a chessboard, you know, arguing about a position on a, on a screen. But if you can talk to other people and get their line of thought, maybe they can come up with the answers and you'll, you'll get the right answers. 
Okay, yeah, that's good advice. And of course, those of us who grew up in the analog age, that's you kind of had no choice but to develop that way, uh, hanging out at uh, chess clubs like the the Marshall and the Manhattan, may it rest in peace. And these days, of course, you can do it over Zoom as well. Um, and this kind of um, ties into what I mentioned. Uh, we've got several great Patreon mailbag questions. So thanks to uh, the Perpetual Chess supporters for sending those in. And I want to get into the first one because it's on a related topic. So it's from Igor Feinstein. Igor, uh, listeners who heard um, a recent question, I believe it was for Noel Studer from Igor. Igor is grinding hard on the chess puzzles. So shout out to Igor. And he asks, what is your view on what is better for adult improvement in chess, specifically category level players, studying with books or using online resources? I still cling to the idea that studying with books leaves a stronger and longer term impression on the chess mind and that books are a better bang for your buck. But maybe I'm missing something regarding online resources like YouTube or Chessable or even Lessons on Chess.com. And he also mentions he recently read your book, Inner Game of Chess, cover to cover, in two to three months. <laughs> good. Well, thanks, Igor. Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's actually two models there. Um, you, you're going to find great players who, who uh, grew up um, just on books and others who, who never read books. I mean, you know, famously, uh, Hikaru uh, Nakamura said that he considered the classic books a waste of time. And when you know one of his teachers said you should study Steinitz games, he, he exclaimed to his father, uh, "Why do Dad? Why do I have to study the games of dead guys?" Um, and the other extreme is is uh, Fabiano Carrara, who um, you know when he was working initially just learning just basic stuff. With Bruce Pandolfini, Bruce had him read uh, the classic books, look at them together. A lot of these, you know, Dover books that you could buy the the, the basic paper paperbacks and go through the games of you know Morphy and so on. And I, I was happy to hear from Bruce that you know even one of my books they looked at. Um, but my basic point here is that uh, there's two types of studying. One is is active, and the other is passive. And the trouble with videos. Zoom, uh, well, not Zoom, but uh, YouTube, is that you get into a, a passive situation. You're like in a classroom with a teacher who's never going to call on you, so you can, you know, nod off. You can like listen to it, and you're not going to participate in any active sense. You know, it's like watching a t- TV commercial, uh, a show, and a TV commercial comes on, and when it's over. Somebody might ask, what was that commercial about? What were they selling? And you may have no idea what it was. You've seen that commercial dozens of times, but it doesn't penetrate your consciousness because you're not engaged. Um, the best way is to be able to talk back, and, and you can talk back with a, a book. You can stop at, on this page and say, you know, well, like uh, Yasser Sarawan, um, I, I quoted him in uh, um 500 chess questions answered. He loved to read books because he had a hostile attitude towards the author. He would say, no, you're wrong. I don't believe that knight, I don't believe Bishop takes knight is the right move there. And he would set the pieces up on a board. And I think setting, using a board is actually pretty good because it's better than a screen. You're going to be, when you play chess, you're going to be using a board. You're not going to be using a two-dimensional screen. But he would set it up on the board and try to prove that the author was wrong. And if, even if he was wrong, if he was wrong and the author was right, well, it got him studying. Um, 
And I think that you need some sort of uh, active participation where you're feeding your mind and you're challenging yourself. Um, this is, you know, this is a little bit of ancient history, but y- you may remember uh, the, uh, well, going way back when, when Bobby Fischer played uh, for the World Championship, uh, the New York Times sent uh, one of their best reporters up to the Catskills to a resort where Fisher was studying and training. And he didn't come up with very much information except that Bobby was carrying around something that was known as the Big Red Book. <laughs> like, you know, people in New York knew what he was talking about. They were talking about something. There was a collection of Spassky's games didn't have any words in it. It was simply moves. And it was this uh, German series called the Weltgeschichte de Schach. And uh, it had a diagram every five moves. And the great thing about that is you could play over a game. You look at the diagram. You can then look at the moves. See if you can remember the moves and visualize the game as it's then being played. And then when you get to five moves later, you have another diagram. You can check yourself. And that's how the kids in my generation learned how to visualize. And some of us even figured out how to play blindfold chess. And, of course, you don't have to play blindfold chess to, to be good, but it, did, and it, it does marvels. Uh, when you read a book and you, you, know, you don't have to look at the analysis, just look at the moves that were played, the bold-faced moves, and go from one diagram to another, and you'll see you know, market improvement in how much uh, you, you digest Wow, a lot of lot of insights there, Andy. So, I mean, in terms of a takeaway, I guess is it fair to say that what you're saying from Igor's question is it's not so much whether what you do is online or in a book as that you um, you ingest the material in an active as opposed to a passive fashion, which, whichever material it is. Yes, and I mean, that's the same, same thing as when you're in you know, a school classroom. Uh, you have to you know, get yourself involved. You have to be a, a participant. Um, passive learning simply doesn't work. Yeah, I, and on a sort of related note, you know, of course, I'm uh, quite active on chess Twitter, and we have a great community, the, the chess punks that talk a lot about sort of looking for book recommendations and improvement rec- recommendations and stuff like that. And I remember recently at some point, someone uh, tweeted out something like either looking for a recommendation or making one about a certain chess book. And Grandmaster da- Daniel Gormley uh, responded, he said, you know, you guys need to stop talking about chess books and just play chess. Um which there's also an air of truth to. I mean, you also you you have to learn by doing as well. So how does that mix into uh, the the cocktail, Andy? Well, another of the questions in uh, 500 uh, chess questions uh, answered was what's the the proper mix between studying and playing. And uh, I remember this this was asked by of a number of strong players a number of years ago, and they were all over the map. They were saying, you know, 70% study and 30% playing. And somebody else would say, no, no, it's 62% uh, playing. And, 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 you know, they were, they were having all sorts of variety. You can become a very strong player. Um, I think John Watson, uh, the great book reviewer, <laughs> since he gave me a good review, um, became a, a strong player purely by reading. Um, Vasily Smyslov, um, you know, never played outside his home um, until his father thought he was emotionally ready to play chess. And I think he was like 15 at the time. So he just studied stuff 
in his father's library. Father had a an enormous library for the time. And you can quite easily do that. Alternatively, you can find players who just, you know, uh, played chess constantly. Uh, you know, I remember Walter Brown when he was young, he was just playing, you know, constantly uh, wherever he had a chance. And uh, you can improve that way. I think you have to find what the mix that is most comfortable for you. Not not the one that you're going to, you know, you may not know what you're going to benefit from the most, but what you enjoy the most. And uh, see if that works. If you're playing bullet on ICC every day for five hours, yeah, that might not be the very best use of your time. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that you have to put a stop to yourself. But, you know, everybody develops bad habits, and chess players develop some of the worst. Yeah, although, of course, Hikaru, um, no stranger to bullet chess. And this is going to come out in a few weeks, Andy, but as we record on uh, November, I believe it's 4th, um, yeah, on November 4th, Ali Reza Faruja looks primed to um, secure a slot in the candidates with uh, three rounds to go in the uh, um, the FIDE Grand Swiss. Now, things could change, but either way, the broader point is Faruja is no stranger to bullet chess either, but somehow for some people, um, it, you know, it seems to work. So I guess um, to, to summarize sort of the broader conversation, um, there's differing opinions on everything, but basically if what you're doing isn't working, try one of the other advocated approaches. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, players have become, uh, good, uh, in, in any sort of method. They have done it in places where there were chess clubs. They've done it in remote locations. They've done, and now of course you have the internet so that no, nothing is really remote. So you have, a, a quite a, quite a choice out there. Yeah. And so, Andy, um, you've been retired from competitive chess for a while, but what what type of chess learner were you? To what do you attribute your success? Uh, well, I never had a teacher. Um, <laughs> that sounds, you know, you know and I, I, I grew up uh, reading uh, books and uh, going to the Marshall Chess Club. Um, I remember reading Reuben Fine saying that he, he never read a chess book but until he became a really strong player and then i found out people at the marshall said yeah but he used to come to the marshall seven days a week and spend six hours a day um <laughs> i couldn't i couldn't possibly do that i you know I, I i really can't explain how um i got as good as i did uh particularly in my college years because because in during my college years chess was probably the fourth priority um I had to keep my grades up because uh, if I didn't, I would lose my student I draft deferment, and I could very easily end up in the U.S. Army in Vietnam. And second priority was probably working on the college newspaper. Third, I was working part-time in the middle of the night as a copy boy at the New York Post to get a foot into journalism. Chess was the fourth priority, and somehow I managed to juggle it all. Um, I don't think anybody else, you know, not everyone can do this, but I think you can try to find the right niche for chess in your life and um, see how it works. Yeah, it's it, there's always a sort of um, mystical element. And I think, you know, in the mortal words of Bobby Fischer, I just got good. I think a lot of like, especially the grandmasters like yourself that I interview, like they can talk about books that they read. 
um, and, you know, uh, teachers who made an impression and stuff like that. But there is something um, hard to describe about like, they just accelerate for a while and then it stops. So often it can be hard to, for people looking to try to sort of um, mimic that. Now, hearing you discuss this, Andy, um, makes me want to jump ahead a little bit. I want to talk about your biography in detail a little bit later. But one thing you mentioned in it is, uh, and I, I know you mentioned John Watson has a rave review in the December Chess Life. Um, the, I echo his thoughts. I greatly enjoyed reading this. Um, Yefim Geller um, had kind of a legendary jump in strength um, from candidate master to world elite in like his early 20s. Um, do you, in all of your research, I know you mentioned he's sort of like a chess professor anyway, um, harder working than anyone, but did you have a sense of uh, what he might have done to make such a historic jump in chess strength? I think he was a, um, he was a, a guy who would sit at the chessboard and just alone in his room and work on chess constantly. And that, that doesn't always show up. Um, you can uh, make uh, uh, quantum leaps in chess, and, and many players do when they start out, and then you hit a plateau. And that plateau, you know, that plateau might be a rating of 1,300, and you can't go beyond that. Your natural talent got you to 1,300. It's not going to get you past that. Or your natural talent can get you to, you know, 1,800 or 1,900. Or, and in Geller's case it was close to master um but i think that eventually it it paid off and it it pays off in mysterious ways you really don't know that you've gotten better uh just by rating it you you learn uh, it's not like you have eureka moments when you suddenly realize oh my god now i understand the isolated queen pawn or now i can figure out uh you know how to win queen and knight versus rook you know that 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 doesn't that's not going to happen what will happen is that you uh, will uh, ingest information, and you won't know that you know it. That's the the strange thing about chess. The more you know, and you don't know that you really ha- have that information, and it really won't uh, show up until you start. You know, beat, you'll be beating players that you never beat before, or you're winning games more easily than than it never seemed possible. I know that that was in my case when suddenly I was able to defeat opponents that uh, had always given me uh, enormous trouble, and I you know I had terrible losing records against them, and suddenly you know I was able to win. Uh, I think in the case of Geller, you know, he had certain certain passions and i think one of the stories i told in the book is is uh, about how um he uh, he played bobby fisher in a tournament in bled in 1961 and at the end of the game and, and this is the game uh, that's in fisher's book uh, my 60s memorable games and it was their first game and geller collapsed and lost and then he heard a roaring standing ovation from the fans and Geller was shocked because these were this is in Yugoslavia. This is the socialist brotherhood. These guys should be cheering me, and here they're cheering for this capitalist enemy. And Fisher became Geller's lifelong enemy. He just like became obsessed with with Fisher and the way that Fisher would be described as a uh, a genius. And that's I think one of the things that propelled Geller further. Um, I think he had this huge plus score against Fisher after that. I think he lost once more in the Curacao candidates, and then he lost to him in the final game they played. But over the years, he was he was the Fisher slayer, um, and that's what drove him further. 
simply that, you know, I have to get good enough so that next time I play Bobby, I'm going to beat him. <laughs> no, no better motivator than uh, contempt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Um, sad, but but yeah, I think it's all, often the case that, you know, if you feel slighted or something, um, you know, uh, it, it can really light a fire to uh, keep working. You certainly see that a lot in sports. You know, there'll be like some elite, elite athlete who everyone says is amazing um, and then, but it turns out all they fixate on are the criticisms, you know, like uh, Kevin Garnett, when the Celtics won the championship in, in the NBA, like I remember there's this highlight of him yelling, like, what are they going to say now? What are they going to say now? But meanwhile, like <laughs> everyone knew he was an elite player. It's not like people weren't, were saying he's bad, but somehow that's the narrative in his head. And that's what can propel someone to be a champion, whether in chess mm -hmm. or basketball. Now, Andy, before we talk more about your book, I did want to sprinkle in another Patreon question from Alex Friedman, because you've been talking about your own chess com uh, competing um, a bit. And of course, you mentioned uh, the, the famed Marshall Chess Club, which has been coming up a lot on the show recently. Uh, shout out to the Marshall, as always. And Alex asks, uh, which one of your nine wins of the Marshall Chess Club Championship is the most memorable? Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, let me first preface that by saying uh, the club championships in those days were quite different um, because you went to a chess club to play in a tournament. You didn't, there weren't weekend tournaments in a, in a hotel uh, run by a tournament director. Tournaments were held in, tur in, in clubs and they were played usually one round a week. Um, and you know, uh, you would know the pairings maybe in the middle of the week. So then you would then prepare for it. You didn't, it wasn't like they posted the pairings. I have 15 minutes. I have to cram for this. No, you got to actually study the game, study for your next opponent. You might adjourn the game. Then in which case you can learn something about the end game when you, you know, uh, prepare for the, uh, resumption of play. Um, and that's, that's the tournament, uh, that I grew up on. And I, the funny thing is I can remember, tournaments that I should have won, or at least I felt I should have won, uh, Marshall championships much better than I do the, the ones that I won. Um, you know, the thrill of victory is never, never as good as not never as memorable as the agony of defeat. Um, I can remember his specific games. Every time I played, uh, Arest Popovich, uh, and the Marshall championship. And I seem to do that every year. We had a game that like, you know, really got me going. And, uh, I remember some wonderful dragon variations that, that I played against him. Um, and, and but and I can remember a, a game um, when I resigned against Joe Tamargo at one year that he won the club championship, and that became sort of a famous game because I resigned in a position where I thought I was getting mated and I wasn't. Uh, of course, I was dead lost in the position, but you know this became a, sort of a myth that I resigned in a drawn position. <laughs> in fact, I've done done worse in other things, but. Um, so, you know, the short answer to, to Alex's question is I, I, I really don't have a, a, a club championship that stands out. The first one I, I won, I know I won it by a score of 7-1. to one. That's the only thing I remember about it. I don't remember any of the games. I remember games from, from other uh, championships, uh, even in the late 80s when I, uh, I think I last won it in 1988. Um, I don't remember, you know, some of them 
nearly as well. Huh, that's funny. Yeah, and I think that's another thing that's common in chess and sports, that the the losses can just sting so much more. Um, well, thanks for uh, that stroll down memory lane, Andy. So um, I want to... Uh, I want to dig deeper into your book, well, your, your multi-biography, I should say. Um, but first, let's uh, take a break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by our old friends at Chessable.com. Hopefully, you know by now about their proprietary move trainer technology that helps you remember tactical patterns as well as opening sequences. Whatever aspect of your game you're looking to work on, there is an excellent chance that Chessable has something for you to help. They're also constantly releasing new courses. In the pipeline currently, they've got an, a lifetime repertoire 1E4 from none other than Anish Giri. And they've got the Ginger GM, Simon Williams, soon to release a treatment of G- legendary Grandmaster Alexei Shiro's Fire on Board, plus so much more. So just be sure to always go to chessable.com and take a look at what's new. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by aimchess.com. Hopefully by now you guys are all aware of their awesome algorithm that gives you actionable tips to improve your game. But on this ad, we wanted to make sure you're aware of the Magnus Nepo Prediction Challenge. Go to magnusnepo.com, sponsored by AimChess, and it's they basically ask you a bunch of questions to make predictions based on uh, what you think will happen in the upcoming World Championship. And there's lots of prizes like chess boards signed by Magnus, chessable courses, premium membership to Chess24 and AimChess, etc., etc. So fun opportunity. You can even have groups with your friends. So be sure to go to magnusnepo.com before the much-awaited world championship begins. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. And we are back. And yeah, I, I can't really say enough uh, positive words about Andy's multi-biography. It's just a beautiful book from McFarland and Company. A pleasure to read, but a nice combination of games with uh, good, clear annotations, plentiful annotations, and uh, biographical information. But Andy, I mean, it's a big undertaking. As uh, regular listeners may remember, you were kind enough to join Nate Solon and I on the uh, Zurich 1953 recap. And that was months ago. And as I told you, I need time to read your book. And uh, now I I read a lot of books for the people that I interview and the book recaps that I do. But it's taken me a while because I've just been kind of savoring it and putting it down and coming back to it. But to give listeners a kind of preview, Andy, I thought maybe we could kind of free associate about each player, give them a little chess history lesson. Does that sound uh, like a good plan? Sounds good. Shoot. Okay, so let's start with uh, Smyslov, the uh, the headliner. What what comes to mind when you think of Vasily Smyslov, or what do you think is a memorable story you could share for listeners? Uh, Smyslov was a, a really uh, a contradiction because he was a deeply religious man. Um, you know, both he and and Yuri Averbach remembered one thing from their youth. It was the same event, and they both went. They both heard about the this great church, the Cathedral of uh, Christ the Savior in Moscow, and it was blown up. It was blown up by, on Stalin's orders, 
I remember seeing that site on my first trip to Moscow, and it was a swimming pool. And Averbach remembered it because, you know, of course, it was this fantastic explosion. Everybody in his class were, you know, just amazed that this could happen. And, and of course, Smyslov was absolutely horrified. Um, you know, there aren't very many religious uh, chess players, deeply religious. Uh, you know, Vasily uh, Ivanchuk, uh, I guess, is the most memorable in recent times. Um, but he had this uh, strange, uh, or rather unique, uh, personality, um, uh, Smyslov. Uh, there was a tournament in uh, Havana in 1965. It was the first hybrid tournament, I guess you could call it, because Bobby Fischer was playing from the back room of the Marshall Chess Club, and his moves were being transmitted to, to Havana because he couldn't get a visa to play in Cuba. And Smyslov was the head of the delegation, the Soviet delegation in this tournament, and one of the players was a guy named uh, Ratmir Kolmov, and home of you know, I met in, in you know towards the end of his career, he was this like barrel-chested ex uh, Steve, uh, Steve Steve Adore salesman, um, and he uh, was uh, went out the night before he's playing uh, Fisher and got very um, very familiar with Bacardi rum. Let's put it that way. And the next morning, uh, Smithsonian found him and he was hungover, and. As the head of the delegation, you know, um, he had a responsibility to to, to energize um, poor Holmov, uh, who was uh, you know in, in in awful shape. And but instead of berating him, he said, "Look, like what are we going to say when we go back to Moscow? What are, what are you? You're, you're a great player, and you're going to be embarrassed when you lose to Fisher." And he said, "Look, you know, here's a system that you could play against him. Is he going to you're going to play the Roy Lopez, you know?" Bobby likes this pawn structure. Here's what you can do it against him, and you do that, and then, then it, he might fall for this cute trap that you can set up. And sure enough, Fisher fell for it, and it just you know knocked Fisher out of contention for first prize. Holmov went home as a hero, and nobody remembered Smyslov's role in it. And that's that's the perfect way of you know for for Smyslov to 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 act like that. You know, he he would like to be the guy in the background helping out in his own quiet way. Excellent. Yeah. And um, I really, really enjoyed the Smyslov section. And for listeners looking for more on Smyslov, I definitely recommend FM Andy, uh, Andrei Tarakov's book, as well as uh, my interview with him. Um, but Smyslov is, I think, well covered in comparison, I think, especially to uh, Geller, Taimanov and Averbach, who we will will get to in, in due time. Um, but let's hear about Bronstein. And I have a specific question about Bronstein. But first, let's hear you uh, free associate. Hmm, OK, um, when I think of Bronstein, I think of him as a, a, a vagabond because he, he traveled. He never really seemed to have a home after he left Kiev and he left Kiev. Uh, the beginning of World War II for the Soviets when uh, he was invaded. He he just got out uh, in the nick of time. Uh, had he waited uh, a short time longer, he would have died with many of his friends uh, in the, the massacre at Babi Yar uh, when the Nazis um, basically eliminated the, the Jewish population of Kiev. And he traveled about, you know, for for two years trying to find a place in the Soviet Union during that, that period of war. And at the end of it, he was sent to Moscow uh, by his, he had a benefactor who was in the secret police. And he was sent to Moscow to play in the Soviet championship. And he ended up wearing 
the only thing he had, which was a green cotton suit. And the head of sports committee, Soviet sports committee, was outraged that he showed up every day wearing this sort of ludicrous costume. Um, and one day he was playing Budvinnik. And Budvinnik was, you know, considered a god at that time in the Soviet Union. Um, and he was outplayed by uh, Bronstein. And they resumed the game, and Bronstein is winning. And one of the things about chess players that I've always found remarkable is that they can put themselves in their opponent's mind. They can think what their opponent is thinking about the position. But chess players often have no empathy. <laughs> so, That's true, yeah. And and here's here's the the, the case where uh, uh, Smyslov, or rather, uh, Bodvenik makes a move, Bronstein, uh, Bronstein replies, and then Bronstein gets up and walks away to get a, a glass of tea. Um, and when he comes back, there's no board left, literally no position, because uh, Botvinnik has resigned and the tournament director has removed it. And both they, both of them felt insulted. Botvinnik felt insulted because why didn't he wait around for me to resign? And Bronstein felt insulted why did he resign when I wasn't there? And and that's the type of misunderstanding that I think plagued Bronstein throughout his career. Um, as wonderful a player as he was, as many incredible insights that he had about, you know, like the future of chess and things like that. Uh, but that's what I think, you know, sticks out about Bronstein. Yeah, it was striking the the insights he had into the future of chess. I mean, you you write that he foresaw rapid chess, chess increments, even chess streaming. It was amazing to see at a time when someone like Smyslov was like, uh, you know, anti-chess computer. Bronstein sort of saw it all coming. Mm -hmm. He had a uh, fantastic view, but he liked to toss out ideas. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd toss out an idea and um, maybe this will work and, and maybe it won't. And, and that's, you know... And nobody else would think about it, uh, <laughs> and and they would just say, "Well, you know, that's Bronstein. He's crazy." <laughs> um, and then the question that I teased earlier that I I can't help but ask about. I don't know if it's just me who has like a special interest in the sort of uh, match fixing allegations that kind of um, permeate that era. But um, you you write about uh, his candidates match with uh, Boleslavsky. Um, where he went on uh, to play for the world championship. Um, and apparently, I mean, you, this has been, you know, rumored over the years and written about over the years. But, but Andy, your, uh, your conclusion is that this some sort of deal was probably struck for Bronstein to emerge in this uh, classic 14-game playoff against Boleslavsky? Well, I was relying on on uh, the reporting of other people, especially Gennady uh, Sosanko, uh, but uh, and and the quotations from the players themselves, from Bronstein, from Boleslavsky, and from um, uh, Bronstein's protector Boris Weinstein, who was, I think, the real um, the real inspiration for the the evil character in Ian Fleming's uh, novel uh, From Russia with Love. Um, and what happened was that they, before the end of the candidates tournament in 1950, um, at the inspiration of Bronstein and Weinstein, they tried to convince Boleslavsky to give Bronstein a, a, a chance to catch up, and he did. And he, he uh, Boleslavsky drew his last two games. Bronstein won his last two games, and they, and then one of those games, in fact, was a magnificent victory by 
Bronstein over Paul Karras, his his nemesis, who he somehow managed to get, you know, to win a, a remarkable number of games. And their idea was that they would go and say to FIDE and the Soviet Chess Federation, look, uh, instead of having this world championship, you know, match that everyone talks about, how about if we have like a three-player match tournament? And <laughs> they had just fixed the, the finish of a candidate's match, uh, a candidate's tournament, and now they wanted to fix a world championship so that, you know, Bronstein and Boleslavsky could gang up on... on uh, but Vinick, and you know that didn't fly. So they were forced to play the Bronstein Boleslavsky match, and um, it was a. Uh, it's hard to figure out some of those games because some of them look like they were prepared in advance, that they intentionally played these moves because they wanted to make sure that you know the result was because they had fixed games previously. They had like composed games. Boleslavsky admitted at one point. That in in his career with Bronstein, you know, sometimes they spent more time composing the moves of a game before it was played than they actually took to play the games. Um, and and the bottom line was that they wanted to make sure that Boleslavsky was not going to be the world championship challenger because they knew he would lose to Butvinnik. Um, and they and and both uh, Bronstein and and especially Boris Weinstein, his his. Uh, protector, uh, his guardian angel, uh, absolutely hated uh, uh, Botvinnik. Uh, and they, they didn't want, uh, they, they claimed they didn't want uh, Boleslavsky to uh, endure the suffering that uh, he would if he had to uh, be defeated. And, uh, you know, the, the, the funniest thing is, is that, that they, the explanation of why they, this was justified is that, well, once Bronstein becomes world champion, then we'll fix the next world championship cycle. We'll make sure that Boleslavsky is the challenger, and we'll make sure that he wins against Bronstein, and then he gets to be world champion too. It's it's absolutely scandalous, and you know uh, it's not very well known. Yeah, that was what floored me too. The idea that we're not just going to fix this one match, but it's a quid pro quo, and we'll fix like you know the the next world championship as well. Um, just uh, just crazy to see. And um, interesting in terms of uh, you mentioned uh, Sasanko's writing about Bronstein. I mean, Sasanko writes about how Bronstein basically never recovered from uh, losing to Botvinnik. And of course, I also interviewed uh, Sasanko and we touched on that. Um, and it's interesting that there's, it seems like there's maybe a bit of cognitive dissonance if this is true, because he, he necessarily shouldn't have even been in that match yet. He felt like he could just never get over the fact that, that he was there. Well, I mean, chess players are notorious for this type of of attitude. They, you know, they uh, they they expect that they expect to win. You know, uh, it's that that uh, uh, you need that uh, positive attitude. If you don't feel positive um, about your your chances, um, you're never going to succeed. Uh, you know, one of the stories that I told in in the 500 chess uh, questions answered was about how. Um, a woman named Ruth Herring, who later became a big official of the U.S. Chess Federation, came home one night uh, to her home in San Francisco, and uh, she found her her, her 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 there was a guest that they were staying with her and her husband Peter Biasis, and her her guest was looking over her games, and the guest was Bobby Fischer, and and and, and Ruth said like, well, what did you think? 
And and Fisher said, well, you know, the, the problem is with you is is you're too pessimistic. You have to you know think more positively. And uh, Ruth said that you know really improved her her way of our thinking. And so if you go into a game and and you know if you don't have you, you can really suffer with having too much respect for your opponent. Um, and I think Magnus Carlsen said, you know, sometimes I go into a game thinking that my opponent can be an idiot, and uh, then he tries to prove that that's true. Right. Yeah, and that's, that actually uh, segues into our next uh, uh, figure, Geller, who we discussed before, but you mentioned that he was a sort of a professor's mindset, you know, um, whereas like he would study for many hours a given position, as you mentioned earlier and, and wrote about. Um, but then at the board, it seemed like he still wanted to take the same approach. He was, he, he was a perfectionist and a time trouble addict. So maybe some kind of lacking some of the optimism to just move and figure it out later. Yeah, if, if Geller had had uh, unlimited time, and and of course he needed an unlimited number of cigarettes and <laughs> an unlimited uh, number of cups of coffee, I think I think for him, caffeine and nicotine were were two of the food groups. Um, if he if he had all that, he would have been you know, well he would have been world champion. Um, and he you know he, he people forget that he was uh, the, the the prime uh, analyst for uh, Boris Spassky in uh, the Fisher Spassky match, and it drove him crazy that that uh, uh, Spassky was uh, coming up with his own moves when they had analyzed a particular opening position. Uh, extensively, and you know, Spassky was the exact opposite uh, approach because Spassky was this idea of you know you need a clear head, you should go to the board without the burden uh, of too much analysis, which by the way he called you know too much of an American approach, coming to the board with too much opening analysis, and uh, <laughs> and 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 in the end. The funny thing is that that Geller blamed Spassky for failing to uh, follow uh, the preparation that uh, was given to him, and that's the reason that Spassky lost the match, according to Geller. And Spassky said it was my seconds who failed me, and that's the reason I lost the match. Um, so, well, <laughs> <laughs> that's how it goes. Yeah. Um, and then we have uh, Mark Taimanov. Um, legendary uh, musician as well as a uh, chess player and you know some controversy about Mark's um, some of Mark's actions in there as well where would you start with uh, Taimanov Andy? Uh, hmm. I think Taimanov was uh, I think the only true believer who abs- absolutely loved communism um, you know most of the uh, Soviet world champions were not members of the communist party and um uh, Smyslov absolutely refused, um, and somehow managed to get away with it. Um, and and uh, I'd say the only three who became Communist Party members were Botvinnik, Karpov, and Kasparov. And uh, Kasparov, I think, was the only one who became a member of the party before he became world champion. Before it was an obligation. Um, but um, Taimanov believed that the Soviet system was working, and you know he, he writes in his his memoirs, um, which I quoted extensively in the book, that you know what a great guy Che Guevara was, uh, and how what an honor it was to meet him in Havana. 
Um, uh, what, what I think the, one of the, the ironies is that um, his downfall in the fish when he played Fisher, that was the beginning of uh, the downfall, and. Part of that was self-inflicted because he went to the tournament, the, the, the match in, in Vancouver, and he was getting a stipend uh, a day for you know daily expenses, especially food. And there was a, a wealthy Canadian who supplemented his and gave him you know Canadian dollars to spend on, so he could eat wherever he wanted, have the you know the best meals that he could. But instead, uh, according to his second Vasyakov. What Taimanov did is he went to, you know, a grocery store and he bought, you know, basically cheap food stuff so he could cook them in his four star hotel room and keep the dollars that he was given for the restaurants so that he could take these dollars home and buy, you know, goods um, that he were not generally available in Moscow. And so he was like undernourished. And uh, Vasilkov said, "This is this is crazy. This is absurd, but it's true." And you know, in in the end, mm, this this loyal communist uh, uh, Taimanov found that that uh, he had been uh, he had sort of been undermined by his own system. Yeah, and then certainly, uh, I might have been hard to feel the same way about communism, given the the treatment that he endured <laughs> subsequent to being uh, swept famously by Fisher in that match. Yeah, he ended up, as he, he said, he, he he had he had three professions. Uh, he was a chess player. He was a concert pianist. He was actually quite good. Um, his uh, his wife was his uh, partner in duets, and she, in fact, she was the lead. He was the second in there. In fact, when they broke up eventually, and partly because of his downfall, um, he uh, tried to resume his career as a pianist um, with his son, who was also quite accomplished. But they were both of them used to being the second one in a duet, and they couldn't work together that way. But anyway, so he had two careers, and he had a third career as a writer. And he was quite a good writer. Um, and all of a sudden, all three careers were disappear- just disappeared because of uh, uh, the disgrace that he was in. Uh, and he went from being, you know, like one of the busiest persons, people in the Soviet Union, to the only unemployed person in the Soviet Union. <laughs> right. And you mentioned reading his biography. I mean, I know he had the one book, like I was, I was the victim of Fisher. Was what was that? What you read, or was there another source? Oh no, there's a, a much better one. Uh, I, I can't imagine why this book has not been translated. Uh, it's called "Remembering the Most, the Most," and it's it's about his uh, well, its entire career, including his uh, uh, musical career and how. You know, he was studying uh, with uh, the great uh, teachers in the Moscow Conservatory. What happened to him during the war? You know how his his aunt was left in, uh, well, actually, in, it was a Leningrad Conservatory. How his le- his aunt was left uh, in Leningrad during the blockade, during the Nazi blockade, and was eventually killed by cannibals. And this absolutely destroyed his family when they found out about it. Um, but he was evacuated. He went through on the, you know, a marvelous uh, career uh, in uh, performing. Um, he had counted people like Shostakovich as his friends. Um, uh, I think Prokofiev 
might have been included. Uh, but anyway, he, he just it's just like a enormous cascade of, of reminiscences. Um, and again, okay, if somebody, you know, uh, someone who uh, knows Russian, knows chess, you know, somebody go out and, and translate this book because it's really, really very good. Okay, paging Douglas Griffin. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll have to get get him on that. I I know he's working on various translation projects and does a great job on that. In addition to uh to his blog, um, and in his memoir, Andy, you also of course write about more uh more match fixing. His um allegedly or maybe even definitely purchasing um a victory against Madelovich in order to to go on to play Fisher. Does does he address that in in his book? No, he doesn't. Um he uh and he he could have talked of all sorts of, you know, strange uh, machinations that uh went on um uh, for and against him. Um no, it's pretty pretty certain that that he he bought his last round uh point in the interzonal, and there's a reward of the interzonal of 1970, and this reward of that was to play Bobby Fischer. Um, and there's another, you know, funny story in that uh, that I mention, and in, in that uh, in the Soviet championship that got him into the interzonal, he had an adjourned game with uh, Edward Gufeld. and um, it was the they adjourned in a position where there was like very very little chance of winning for either side. The position was so blocked. And Goofield said, uh, okay, well, we'll play off on, you know, such and such a date. They agreed on the results of the play. Um, and then uh, he found out, uh, just by chance, uh, Ty Manov went to the tournament site and found out that the game was being played ahead of time. And then Goofield was going to forfeit him. And they played another, like, 40 moves. Goofield made virtually no attempt to win. And this was explained as just, you know, like like a practical joke on the part of, of, of Goofelds. But if he had been forfeited, um, you know, very possibly um, Taimanov would have been spared the, the opportunity to play in the interzonal and ultimately spared the opportunity to lose to Fisher. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the, the theme of the book is that, that, that there's all sorts of strange ways that, that fate plays with you. Um, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. Yeah, Goofeld, of course, that's not the only uh, allegation about impropriety from, from Goofeld. Uh, he's got, he's got uh, quite a reputation, as as does Matilovich. And one more thing about the, the Matilovich game. Um, I always enjoy going to, to chessgames.com about these sort of specific games because you can read the comments of uh, you know amateur chess historians and professional chess historians speculating. And the, the title of the, they always give each game a title, and the title of the Taimanov Matilovich game that allegedly was bought is uh, Caveat Emptor, Buyer Beware, since he uh, went on to get swept by Fisher, of course. Yeah, and by the way, that, that game I, I used um, in Pawn Structure Chess, um, I, even though I knew that it was probably a, a fixed game, but the game is just so instructive that you can't pass it up. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, sometimes uh, I guess fiction can be more instructive than uh, than truth. Um, in, in like as a teacher, if you're trying to illustrate an idea, it can help to uh, to not be encumbered by what actually happened. Um, anyway, we've got one more player to cover, uh, Andy, uh, uh, Grandmaster Averbach, uh, who's uh, turning 100, I believe, um, in fairly soon. 
Right in February, I believe it is. Um, uh, he wrote uh, in he was in some interview I think recently where he said that he uh, he talked to a gerontologist who said uh, if you get to be ninety, your, your chances are pretty good fifty fifty that you'll be a hundred, and he's going to make it probably. Um, Yuri is a great guy. I I, I I think of him as the wisest man in chess and uh, someone who has been sort of like the like the Talleyrand of of Russian chess because he seemed to survive in no matter who was in charge in the sports federation, who was in charge in the Kremlin, he was going to somehow you know find a way to to exceed. And the the funny thing about him is that um, when he was Still a scientist, you know. He had a real career. A lot of the Soviet players had paper careers, you know. You know, Korchnoi was a historian. Yeah, right. Um, you, you've probably seen the book by um, Vladimir Tukmakov called uh, "Profession uh, Chess Player." Um, uh, well, he was technically a, a member of the Soviet Army. That was his paper profession. Um, in fact, he eventually, I think he was a major by the time um, he uh, had left. And um, someone told me that um, he uh, was officially an instructor in the Arab language in the Soviet army. The fact, the fact that he didn't know anything about Arab didn't matter. It was just a way of, you know, paying him, uh, apparently. Um, but um, the thing about Alverbach is that he had a legitimate career as a scientist and um, he wanted to see if he could get a stipend from the government because that would be, uh, you know, making him an unofficial uh, uh, professional chess player. And his family thought he was crazy. And the chess players he talked to thought he was crazy to give up uh, a scientific career because he would probably make more money. And in, in that time, the only way to do to get make that transition, you would have to become a grandmaster. And they didn't have international tournaments as we know it in those days. I mean, you could still make norms, but it was very, very hard because there were very few tournaments. So he set a clock, an internal clock. He said, if I don't become a grandmaster in two years, then I'm going to go back to science. And uh, the, his only chance was to make it to an interzonal, which he did, and to get close to the candidates tournament. And in those days... Getting into a candidate's tournament was basically the way you became a grandmaster. That's the way Fisher did it. Uh, that's the way um, Spassky, Petrosian, and so on. That's Taimanov. They became grandmasters not by making norms, but by getting into a candidate's tournament. And the, <laughs> he tells a funny story in his memoirs about how in the final round of the interzonal, when his chances of getting into the candidate tournament you know, were, were iffy, uh, he went to the the arbiter's desk, and uh, I think the arbiter was the head of FIDE, Folk Rogard, and he said, you know, and they were trying to you know determine like the top places in the tournament, and and he and Averbach uh, had an urgent question, you know, he wanted to know like what happened in the game between Gollumbeck and Wade, and they looked at him, he was crazy. I mean, who cares about they were fighting to see who was going to avoid last in in the tournament, Gollumbeck and Wade, Wade. But Averbach had figured out the tie breaks, and if the right person won that game, then he would become a candidate, he would become a grandmaster, he would become a chess player. And on that random element, that's what happened. The right guy, the right guy won, and he became a grandmaster, and that sealed his career. Um, 
uh, as I said, no, I, I think uh, Yuri is, uh, is is one of the greatest uh, inspirations and one of the finest players um, there is. Um, it's my favorite communist. <laughs> That's funny. And it's been reported that he survived COVID uh, this year. Andy, have you been in touch with him at all recently? No, it's it, it's hard to get in touch with him because, um, I, I, you know, he, he, his hearing is not as good. I was told uh, to make phone calls and uh, uh, there's some inter- problem with email. Uh, but otherwise, I think he's, he seems to be um, in, in fine shape. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, some players just disappear. We haven't heard from Spassky in, in quite some time. And he's going to celebrate, uh, I guess, I forget which birthday it is, but that'll be next month. Um, it's really a pity, but who knows? Yeah, I emailed Kavalik, uh shortly before he passed, just by happenstance, um, you know, hoping to get an interview. And I don't know exactly what the state of his health was at the time, but his, his reply was not this time. Um, oh, he was in good shape. Uh, he just suddenly, he just collapsed very, very quickly. He didn't, he, you know, I, I was in contact with him too. And, um, it, it seemed like, you know, he suddenly became ill and he didn't realize he had cancer and, and just, you know, went very quickly. He yeah. was working on a book. He yeah. had the book of his, of his career on on uh, that was writing in Czech at the time, and yeah. I don't no idea what happened to that book. Yeah, sad. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know how 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 quickly he deteriorated, but this was about a month before uh, he passed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll leave it there with your book. Again, I can't recommend it highly enough. If if you if you listeners, if you enjoyed hearing Andy talk about uh, all of these fascinating characters, there's so much more in the books as well as uh, some great uh, chess analysis. Um, So Andy, we're going to take one more break and then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about chess books more broadly. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by ChessMood.com. ChessMood was founded in 2018 by Grandmaster Avtik Gregorian. It's a chess education platform that gives you a structured path to work to improve your chess. For $29 a month, you get instant access to over 200 hours of Grandmaster prepared video content and includes openings, middle games, and end games. They also have an active online community where you can find training partners and fellow chess enthusiasts. Uh, Don't forget to check out their free content. They have a great blog where their grandmasters share uh, their own thoughts on chess improvement. I get it delivered to my inbox. So to learn more about uh, Chess Mood and what they offer, be sure to check out their website, chessmood.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we are back, Andy. And uh, we have one more Patreon mailbag question. This one, actually, we have two more. Sorry. But this one is from uh, Bruno Johnson, uh, which was the name of my dog. So Bruno has a special special place in my heart, even though I don't know this Bruno Johnson. Um, and Bruno asks, he says, uh, if you were given an infinite, a time, 
excuse me, if you were given an infinite amount of time and resources, as well as access to anyone currently alive, what would be your perfect book to write? Hmm. <laughs> it's a toughie. Um, yeah, I, I would like to do um, an oral history of uh, the leading players in the United States, leading players in the, in the world. And I would not just do a series of interviews because, you know, interviews in chess magazines are generally awful. They're basically just question and answer transcripts, Q&A. And they're fine as long as the, the Qs are good and the Yays are good, but in most cases there aren't. And, you know, if you read an interview with, say, someone like, you know, Gata Komsky, you realize what an, an awful interview can be. Um, but an oral history would, would um, you know, you subtract the Qs. You just give people a chance to talk about their times, what it was like to be, um, you know, to be uh, a chess player in their era, uh, what it's like now, uh, what they remember. Um, I've been trying for years to get John Fedorovich to write a book, um, and uh, because he's a you know, fascinating person, and he has all sorts of wonderful stories. Uh, when you hear him talk about his run-ins with you know non-chess players like Marlon Brando, <laughs> Katie Couric. Um, you know, and, and as well as some unprintable stories. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I'd love to get that. that uh, John just keeps, you know, refusing. Um, I, I think that, you know, one of the problems is that we really don't know very much about the personal lives of a lot of players. Um, you know, we know what they're thinking about uh, the Nimzo Indian, but, you know, not much else. And, you um, you know, for example, you can be a big fan of, uh, I mentioned Nakamura and Caruana earlier. You can be a big fan of, of one of them or both of them. And today you might think that, well, you know, uh, they're, they're probably very similar people. You know, they have similar views. They probably are big friends. And of course, they're not. <laughs> they're not at all like that. Uh, and yet the average player has no idea that that's true. Um, and, and what I've tried to do in my Soviet books is to bring out, you know, the, the personal side, what they were, what their, their life was like while they were playing these great games, what motivated them to play these great games. Um, and that's, you know, the type of thing that I, I really like to do in a, uh, uh, in a, in a book. But it requires so much work uh, and and uh, so much tape uh, to to get it all done. Um, somebody else is going to have to do it, and possibly some truth serum would be required as well, because uh, a lot of uh, a lot of these higher profile players, they understandably they want to sort of control the narrative. Yes, exactly. They want to they want to save it, and and by the time they're you know they're worthy to be uh, you know interviewed, they. Their memory begins to go. You know, I remember uh, Arthur Biscay wrote a, a memoir, a book of his, uh, his games, and he remembers vividly when Bobby Fischer fell asleep at the board against him, and he gives the wrong game. And it's not that game; it's a different game. And and he, I, he, I asked him about that many years before, and he said, "Oh no, it's definitely this game." You know, uh, and Pal Benko, uh, you know, he, he wrote a wonderful book. Um, and a lot of his uh, details are uh, that he did in an interview at the end of the book are just not quite true. His memory of playing Fisher was somewhat wrong, and playing Tall, he imagined he played Tall in a zonal tournament in outside of the Soviet Union, which simply 
you know, didn't happen and that they drew in certain circumstances and nope, nope, you didn't draw at all. Um, you know, that type of thing happens with uh, a lot of players. Yeah, yeah, unavoidable, but but interesting, especially because that Benko book is that's the one with Jeremy Selman, right? Yes, wonderful book, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's, I've been trying to get my hands on it, but it's uh, like four hundred bucks online for the most part. So <laughs> hopefully, uh, sooner sooner or later, I can track it down. Um, now, uh, one thing you mentioned to me in email on the on the topic of books, Andy, that I found interesting was, and I had a recent conversation with uh, John Hartman of Chess Life, where we we talked about this a bit. Um, how it's kind of a new world in terms of like predicting what what books will find an audience. You mentioned that your your Magnus Carlsen sixty memorable games was your most most successful and had some theories about uh, why that might be. Yeah, I, 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 that's I'm, I'm really very bad at predicting. Uh, the reception of my books. Um, you know, I was going through my papers not that long ago, uh, and uh, I, I found a note that I had sent to uh, my wife Marcy when we were when we were dating, and I said, "Look, I'm just you know going over the uh, page proofs for a book, um, and I don't think it's really going to sell well, um, but you know." Uh, just in case, it, it, it might turn out to be find an audience out there. And the book was Pawn Structure Chess, uh, which is now is 45 years ago. Um, and in the case of the Carlson book, I didn't know um, how this book was going to be received. And um, I, I can't explain it because um, the book has really basically not been advertised. I think there was a brief one-time thing in, in chess life. And it hasn't been reviewed in, in you know, I think there was a British online review. But somehow it, it's been selling better than anything that I have had since uh, the Bobby Fischer-Spassky match, since the Fischer boom. Um, I, I'm not sure what's going on out there. I think there may be a word of mouth. It may be, a, since so many people are buying their books online, they're getting it from Amazon, what is said on Amazon might matter more than than anything else, and if if you look at the uh, the Amazon bestsellers, you know you can you can you know click on a chess book and and see where it stands on the Amazon chess player chess book selling market, and the, you can find the 100 current bestsellers among chess books. Uh, and the current, you know, the the top newcoming chess books and the books that are most requested and so on. And what you see today, uh, well, what you've seen the past year, um, are things like Chess Fundamentals and by by Capablanca. How can that be? Why, why? Well, for one reason, it's uh, in the public domain. Nobody, you don't have to pay the author any royalties. But secondly, it was mentioned. Uh, by Beth Harmon in uh, the Queen's Gambit, um, and and the same thing with uh, modern chess openings is a bestseller suddenly again um, because it was in that series. Uh, it may be a little bit out of date by now, but uh, you know, there's a, the, the way that the chess books are bought and sold nowadays. I think is quite different. Um, you know. Uh, I remember book reviewers used to say, you know, they have to be critical about certain books because, um, you know, they're they're fighting for space in the bookstore. 
Well, no books fight for space in a bookstore anymore. There is no space in a bookstore. Uh, books, you know, uh, any book you can find is going to be available on, on eBay or, or Amazon, uh, even some, you know, really obscure books. And, and uh, when a new book comes out, it, it you know, has, a, it has some quick sales um, and uh, it needs some word of mouth. I think word of mouth might be the new method of, of reviewing books. Yes, yeah, so as you say, some combination of that and I guess Amazon reviews and, you know, it probably didn't hurt that your book is about Magnus Carlsen. Yeah, well, you, you, can't, uh, you can't go too far wrong about uh, something like that. Um, yeah, working, I'm working on a book now on, uh, well, a um, similar book, um, about uh, Fabiano Caruana. Oh, okay. Um, It'll be we'll interesting. See how that turns out. Yeah, interesting mm-hmm. to compare the Q ratings, as it were. Do you mind saying, Andy, how many books the Magnus one sold? No, I, I, I haven't seen the the most recent. I'm, I'm expecting the new one, um, the new royalty statement in uh, three or four weeks. It's been something like uh, somewhere about uh, a dozen books uh, a day. Okay. Um, which is, um, you know, um, it, it, there, there are some days, you know, where it certainly doesn't do that well. But um, I, oh, another thing is Pawn Structure is back on the bestseller list. I can't explain that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it just finds an audience. <laughs> the, this podcast may have a small part to do with that. I have to, uh, I, I have to plead guilty. But, uh, but yeah, Neil Bruce and I did a, a podcast, mostly Neil Bruce, I should say, uh, where he um, he's a uh, adult improver chess player who's built a, a loyal following online because he reads and appraises so many chess books. And uh, he recommended your book and um, Mauricio Flores Rios's um, updated uh, book, excellent book, Chess Structures as well. So um, that may have something to do with it. I'm not sure. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, so... On the topic of Magnus Carlsen, we have one more listener question, Andy, as we start to wrap things up. Um, this one is from Dr. Andrew Perry, who asks, he says, my, my impression from casual observation is that Magnus Carlsen's chess ability is fading very slightly and that his true playing strength in the next world championship will be a few points lower than it was at the last world championship. As an expert on Magnus Carlsen, can you comment on whether you think that's true? If you think it is, how much strength has he lost, in your opinion? And before you answer that, Andy, I should just add, I'm not positive when this interview is going to come out. The, ma- the match may have already begun, but it doesn't, it doesn't mm-hmm. impact your answer too much. But, but please go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, well, the first thing I say to Dr. Perry is that um, we have more data to work with on Magnus in the past two years than we ever had before because he's played much more chess in the past two years than he has before. Unfortunately, this bit, almost all of it has been uh, in speed tournaments, and that's going to be uh, distorted information because Magnus is a intuitive player. Um, he has he's, his intuition is, is maybe unrivaled. I think there's like two or three other players I can think of quickly. You know, Capablanca, Karpov, uh, Spassky, who who had an instinctive idea of, of the best move. Most of the other good top players in the world are concrete players, as they're called nowadays. They're calculators. Their primary way of um, 
finding the best move or their idea of the best move is by calculation. Uh, and often they have to go through their second and third choice, their you know, second and third candidate before they find it. That doesn't mean that they're not going to find the best move ultimately. Um, you know, uh, Kasparov did not have the greatest intuition, but uh, not compared to Karpov, but he did pretty well in the matches. Uh, and Korchnoi just worked harder at the board in calculation than, than Spassky did in, in many of their games. So right now, I'd say it's, it's hard to tell uh, what um, uh, Magnus's uh, playing ability is because we haven't seen him playing... Uh, I hate the term classical games, but we haven't seen him playing the classical games that's going to be required of him in the match against uh, Jan Naponyashi. Um, and uh, I, what I wrote in Chess Life uh, a couple of months ago is that uh, Magnus is the underdog. Um, I predicted he would lose by two points uh, unless he regains the kind of intensive. Um, interest in winning the match. Remember, the last two matches were tied after the regulation classical games. He only won them uh, against Karyakin and uh, Caruana in um, the speed playoffs. Um, so it's uh, it's really hard to, to evaluate uh, where he stands now. But the other thing to keep in mind uh, not, not people. A lot of people don't know this. Um, it should be obvious, I guess. One year from now, we're going to have another world championship match. According to this, according to the schedule, you know, there's going to be an, another candidates tournament probably six, seven months from now, and whoever loses in the Carlson Nepomniachtchi match is going to be seeded into that candidates tournament, and very possibly could win it. So we could have. You know, Nepo versus Magnus round two, one year from now. Um, and in that match, I would bet on Magnus. Not necessarily this one. Interesting. Um, I have to respectfully disagree, Andy. Although one thing I want to add is, obviously, again, with the FIDE Grand Swiss ongoing, it's fun to let the imagination wander about the possibility of Ferruja uh, ascending quicker than one could have imagined. And I mean, he seems, again, this will be ancient history by the time this comes out, but he has excellent chances of securing a candidate spot and he's already up to number four on the live rankings. So they may be on a collision course um, for, for next year's world championship. Um, now, as to the the match, my, my, my only question is if your if Magnus is winning Norway chess changed your assessment at all, Andy? Magnus is winning Norway chess. I mean, he. Oh, uh, yes, I know. He, uh, he did. He looked very impressive in that. Yes, but um, uh, again, uh, one tournament is not going to be you know that uh, that clear evidence, um, and uh, it's it's matter. You know, we're only talking about what is it, ten games, twelve games in these World Championship matches. A lot can change in 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 the course of that, and you get behind. Uh, you know, he, he's he's been remarkable in that he's been able to come back uh, when he's behind in a match. 
that happened in the Karyakin match, and uh, you know <laughs> how he how he managed to tie that match and, and get into a speed playoff was was really uh, surprising. Um, and I you know I, I wrote about that somewhat extensively in in my Carlson book. Um, I you know I. I, I really don't know how he's going to uh, how he would take uh, something like this. Uh, again, he has um, more confidence in himself than than almost anybody else. But if you remember going way back when, he had an opportunity to get into a candidates tournament um, more than ten years ago, and he declined because he didn't really have a strong interest at the time in becoming world champion. It would be, you know, he'd have to play in the candidates tournament and then he would have to play in the, the world championship match. And, you know, he just felt that, that he wasn't ready for it. He didn't want to spend his time doing that. <laughs> you know, anybody else in the world, given the opportunity to play a candidates tournament would like, you know, sell their soul. So uh, sometimes he acts in, in mysterious ways and, uh, you know, uh, as I said in Cheslav, he's the real mystery in this upcoming match. It's not Nippon Yushi. He's a known quality. It's 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 Magnus, and uh, which Magnus shows up for the match is is will determine the winner. Okay. Yeah. I, and as I always say, I uh, I can't wait. And Andy, you know, I've probably informally, you're probably about the twelfth person I've asked about the world championship match, and uh, your only company in terms of thinking that. Uh, that Nepo might be the favorite is uh, is uh, Vladimir Kramnik. So you've got some good company, at least. Very good. <laughs> um, so, Andy, this has been amazing, as always. Do you have uh, anything to add I, um, before we uh, call it an interview and say goodbye until next time? Nope, and I think by next time I'll probably have a couple more books. Excellent. We can oh, talk about. Yeah, always plenty of things to talk about. So once again, the multi-biography is called Smyslav, Bronstein, Geller, Taimanov, and Averbach. And for newer chess fans listening, 500 Questions Answered is also a great resource. It's got a little bit of chess sprinkled in, some diagrams and some illustrative examples, but it's also a lot of prose just sort of um, walking one through the chess world, sort of um, answering questions about this um, this unique little... Um, uh, um, I'm drawing a blank on the word, uh, microculture or whatever it may be. Um, so Andy, uh, thank you again and, uh, look forward to continued books and conversations in the future. See you next time. Perpetual Chess is proud to be a member of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to check out their sports and pop culture-related podcasts as well. I also, as always, would like to thank Matthew Passy for producing the show. Without Matthew, Perpetual Chess would not exist. And I want to thank everyone who listens to the show, whether it be on your own, without telling anyone about it, keeping it secret, or if you're helping to spread the word, all the better, whether it be telling a friend about a particularly impactful interview or whether it be writing a positive review online, all of that stuff helps get the word out and helps Perpetual Chess continue to grow. But most of all, of course, I want to thank those that provide financial support to Perpetual Chess. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would not be possible in its current form. And I would like to give uh, special thanks to the following people and entities. Here comes the list. Uh, Chessable.com. David Lazarus of Lasman Chess, coach of Dave's Young Tigers on Lee Chess, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, 
Adaptive Interactive Web Designs and Services, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Mitchell, I am Dimitri Schneider, Douglas Wilson, I am Eric Rosen, Farhan Tharwar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, Hampus Axelson, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsyth, Kevin Gilmore, Kevin O'Callaghan, Kevin Pryor, King Cell, the King's Crusher YouTube channel, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Michael Sullivan, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Nace Twitch channel, Perry McManus, GM Peter Prohaska, Peter Sodi, Philip Flemons, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Ray Lillywhite, Reuven Fisher, Rick Rivas, Robert Hansen, Ross Crossland, the Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stephen Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gearson, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, the Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, and I also would like to thank the following, Hashtag Chess Punks, who are the adult improvers on Chess Twitter, Ace Vallega, Adam Fowler, Adam Johansson, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio Leonfort, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Gruber, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brandon Halseed, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Bruno Johnson, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Ken Kabadi, Chad Hilton, Chad Likens, of Rose City Chess in Portland, the Chess Dojo, Chess for Charity, Jacksonville, Chess Patser, Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Best, Dave Saylor, David Blaskacek, David Brown, David Gores, David Hamblin, David Cramley, David Peterson, Dennis Parrish, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Eric Baldwin, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Mayo Perea, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letard Lavoie, Frank Tortoris, MD, Frank Zananes, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, Gene Stewart, George Foote, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Gregory Higgins, Han Shute, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovac, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Banastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jay Tuttle, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeff Davis, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Portland, Jerry Wells, Jesse DeCumos, Jesse McNulty, Jim Jones, Jim Ratliff, Jim Sadler, Joe DeSano, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tolley, Juan Almagua, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Bannister, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tolley, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Justin Goodfellow, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kari Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, 
Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Reiferth, Lars Reeson, Macaulay Peterson, Maria Emelyanova, aka Photo Chess, Mark Chaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Butolovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matt Ferrari, Matthew Coughlin, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigma Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, Pablo Davila, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passan, and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Eckert, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Queenside Management Limited in Switzerland, um, Randall Montgomery, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahalva, Richard Hallenbach, Richard McCormick, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Turner, Robert Wall, Robert Wilson, Rory Coleman, Ryan Berg, Samson Teaches Chess, Satyajit Malagu, the Say Chess YouTube channel and publishing empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Krauss, Sebastian Finsterwater, Sergey Makagon, Seth Ruzica, Seth Will, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Simon Schmidt, Stefan Roller, Stephen Miller and Tom George, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Terry King, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edsel, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Beauchamp, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, Zachary Hoskin, and Zhivkor Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.